0: I'm excited to introduce our guest for today. He's a reformed hedge fund manager, an ex-Yale hockey player, someone that I have learned a great amount from, and that I know a lot of you have learned a ton from. Please welcome James Lavish.
1: Hey guys, thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Can you hear me okay?
2: You sound great, you look great. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) no, you do like the framing is nice. You got like a background we can like see depth in, but then your face is nice and sharp. It's a good look.
0: To be honest, you're, you're making it look bad for me because my setup when I'm not in Nashville is far, far worse than yours. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's easy. Just get a, get a, get a camera that, that you have a pretty good lens on, put a 35 millimeter on it. You're good.
2: What is this? And then you gotta have a background. That's excuse me. Yeah, the, the, the background like, is my problem. Less the camera. He like, lives in a cardboard yeah. box and then there's like a single sheet of drywall that he pretends he lives in his mother's basement. But this is true. Well, this whenever isn't... I
0: piss my mom off, she sends me outside and I sleep in a cardboard box. <laughs>
1: This is uh, we have more in common than you know. So this <laughs> this is this is not my house actually. Um, um, my wife and I evacuated Vegas for this for most of the summer. So I'm I'm here in California for a couple a couple more weeks. I've been here for six weeks, and so it's a it's a it's a pretty nice rental though. It's, nice, um, it's a good place. Yeah. So,
0: so James, so what did guys? I miss in the in introducing you? I know you call yourself a reformed hedge fund manager. What what would you use to describe yourself?
1: No, that's pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm. I would say that I come from the traditional investment world, and reformed means I've I've been I've dug into Bitcoin deep enough and understand it enough to understand just how important it is and how broken our system is. And you know, I mean, I benefited. I benefited for for many years in that system, and and so the the reformation is understanding how how damaging this system is and how it's creating a separation of wealth in in the the western hemisphere so it's a, it's an important it's an incredibly important change in my life and this is where i want to be to help educate people and kind of bridge that chasm between institutional and traditional investing and finance and bitcoin and the future and i think that with my with my experience and knowledge, I know that I've got so I've seen some things that people haven't seen. You know, Greg Foss will say, "Sat in the wrist chair, whatever." You know, I've been in hedge funds and private equity for twenty five plus years, and so there are some things that 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 everybody in this space could benefit from, and I I hope to help people understand those things.
0: One of my favorite questions to ask people who come from traditional finance into Bitcoin is, and If you are a better man than I, which I don't doubt for a second, like what was your initial gut reaction to Bitcoin? Like mine was, I don't what what is this? Like no, go away. I don't want to buy this to buy weed in college. And and what was sort of the value proposition that really cemented what Bitcoin could be for you?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So you know, when I first I saw I heard Bitcoin, uh, you know, people talk about it kind of on the fringe. Nobody in the traditional world was talking about it. Nobody in traditional investing was talking about it. You know, like my, my wife's friends were talking about it. Some of the people who were in technology or computers or, you know, that world. And I just ignored it. I, I dismissed it as, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a it's an online casino. I couldn't wrap my head around it. I didn't do any research on it. So that was that was back in 2014, 2015, 2016, somewhere in that area. And then it popped back up on my radar and guys, this is one of the most painful things to admit and and realize. But back in 2018, I had a little bit of discretionary capital and I wanted to put it to work and I wanted to go out of the risk curve You know, somewhere outside of the things I was doing that were normal. Right. So not my house investment or not investment stocks or not investments in private equity, but something a little bit further on the risk curve and Bitcoin popped up on my radar. And I was like, I gotta check this thing out because this is not going away. It just run up into the 20,000 plus range and it come all the way back down under 5,000. I thought this is someplace where I, I think that this is this is real. And the funny thing is, is being an investor and seeing it run up like that and then come back in I felt like that was a healthy pullback and my immediate reaction was this is a healthy pullback and this is something that is it warrants me taking a look at here so that's kind of a funny thing right so and then i did is what you do normally when you're an institutional investor and i went to the so-called experts on the street and since bitcoin is technology related I went to the technology analysts and, and experts in investing and those who were, you know, deep in that industry and that sector. So, and across the board, they're like, it's not really worth anything. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's just, you know, it has no underlying value. And I dismissed it again. And I just let it go. I, you know, and I, it's so painful to think about because, you know, thank you so much the experts. Thank you so much for warding me off at 3,500 bucks. That was so helpful. Thank you. Because, you know, then I could get in back in 2020 and 2021, when it was up in the forties and 50,000 range, and that's where I could start buying it. So, you know, but the, the saying goes in our circles, everybody gets the price they deserve. And I deserve that price. I was arrogant, I was ignorant and I deserve it. And so, but, that forced me to dig really deep in and understand it, truly understand it before I started buying it. And so I didn't buy it on speculation first, I really started digging in on it. And so flash forward, this is a long answer to your question, I'm sorry. And if it becomes a monologue- No,
0: please, we are loving this.
1: Okay, so flash forward and we hit the, the pandemic and I'm leaving my situation and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And my son, who's in college, he said, and he's got a bunch of, of uh, super intelligent computer science major friends. And they're like, you got, you've got to check out, he said, you've got to check out this crypto again, dad, I think you ought to give it another chance. And he said, crypto. And so he convinced me to buy some Ethereum and, and maybe Cardano. And so I started, I, I started digging into it and it was within weeks that I was like, okay, I've got to go back into Bitcoin because that's where that's where the reality is for me. And so so I I started moving all my assets that I accumulated into not all my assets. Let me let me back up what I had bought in, in Ethereum and Cardano. I moved it all over into Bitcoin and I started digging in and that's really where I started understanding what it was about. Flash forward a few weeks and or maybe a couple of months by then where I watched all the Michael Saylor videos. I read some read some books. I'd, I'd seen a whole bunch of trading videos on YouTube. And then I stumbled across this, this pump interview with Jeff Booth. And you guys may have heard this before, but Jeff, I, I sat there on the, I had my laptop and I was on the edge of the bed. And I just started this video. We're about to eat dinner. And I, you know, it was about 25 minutes into it. And I just stopped. And I said, okay, I've got to, I've got to get my wife to see this. She's got to see this. So I said, you know, Vicky, come here, look at this, watch this. And we sat down on the edge of the bed with my laptop and we watched it all the way through. And at the end of it, she looked at me and she's like, Do we own enough? <laughs> <laughs> so I watched it again. I really, you know, Jeff is a really, he's an important person in this space for me and I've gotten to know him pretty well and he's he's a great guy, but he's, he, his his explanation resonated with me like no other explanation because I come from the world of institutional investing and an understanding that global macro approach of the the deflationary forces of of technology versus the inflationary uh, forces of, of money manipulation in the fed and how, how those are, are kind of diametrically opposed and how eventually they will they'll crash and they will crash into each other. And there will be hopefully not, but there will be some sort of massive change. Hopefully it's not catastrophic. Hopefully we can kind of run operating systems alongside for a while, but, but that really, that, that made it click for me. And at that point I was like, Okay, that's it. I'm all in on this. I need to just find a way that I can get into this space and help people understand it, and this is where I want to spend my time for the remainder of my career. So, that is a long answer, sorry guys.
2: <laughs> no, I it was it's so interesting. I'm I got I guess I got a couple of questions. One is mm. it's super interesting to me that you it sounds like you made the transition from not understanding what Bitcoin was and sort of the 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 unique aspects of it to understanding it. It sounded like you said, like within like a month, like within like three to four weeks of basically like owning a shitcoin and then digging into it and just being like, got it. And and switching yeah. over. That's a remarkable turnaround.
1: Well, I mean, remember I had seen it before. And so I knew a couple of the properties, but then I really dug in and and understanding how it's immutable, understanding how it how it's truly decentralized, understanding how there's a limit to the number that will ever be mined. Um, the, how it's trustless. Like these are all problems I've dealt with my entire career. Mm. You know that let's let's talk about the the trustless problem. You know, I, every single thing you do on Wall Street has counterparty risk. Everything, and the further you go out on the risk curve, the higher that counterparty risk is. And so when you t- when when we talk about credit default swaps and you look back at the housing crisis, one of the biggest problems were, was you didn't know even if you owned the insurance, you didn't know if if the counterparty was going to make good on your what you owned. And so there's counterparty risk. Now once I understood and really like I grasped that there's no counterparty risk with Bitcoin, that just blew my mind wide open I was like, wow okay this is this is something that is truly remarkable and it's groundbreaking and it, it's it will take our money into something that this world has never seen before. It's an absolute remarkable breakthrough and yes, it needs technology. Yes, it needs mining. yes, it needs energy. but you know you're storing your energy with money and that makes sense to me. To use a proof of work in order to do that. So it wasn't that big of a leap for me. If you think, think through those terms of the problems I've seen on wall street and investing over these years and how that could be solved. So, so easily with money, true hard money, like Bitcoin. Got it.
2: I I
0: want to caveat one thing that you said and Maybe I just look at this in a in a weird lens. So I open it to anyone disagreeing with this. But I actually think there is counterparty risk in Bitcoin, but specifically in certain ways that users can interact with it and accidentally introduce it. And the the biggest, I think, counterparty risk is not holding your own coin. If I were just to continuously buy and leave it on Coinbase, absolutely I am fair, sure.
1: absolutely fair. But you're you but you don't own Bitcoin then.
2: Exactly. But again, that
1: is that is a you know okay. So I buy a stock, right? And we don't have a mechanism to. This is funny because I was talking to Mark Moss about this over lunch yesterday, and that you don't. There's no mechanism for you to hold that certificate of stock. You used to be able to, but not anymore. Now you have DTC, and you have you have prime brokers or your broker at Robinhood or at ETrade. They hold the certificate for you. So all you have is an agreement. It's an IOU. Yeah, you've given them money. They're holding it, but you have an IOU. Now, the SEC, it's highly regulated. You know, there's the, the counterparty risk there is pretty low. But 100% agreed that you've just introduced a traditional finance problem that you don't need to introduce with Bitcoin. So get it off exchange, figure out how to do it. It's not that hard. If a fifty-year-old guy can figure out in a matter of hours, you can do it. It's not that hard. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I don't. But that's so a like, great point, and I'm glad you brought it up because it's it's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and
2: I think just hammering at home, like you don't own your Bitcoin unless you own your keys. If you have it on an exchange, you own no Bitcoin. That's something that's really hard for people to wrap their heads around. I was watching a yeah. I've mean, this before, but I was watching an, I forget which old Western it was with a friend of mine who's you know younger than I am. And everyone's the new P that's true. It's true. We've been through this before. I'm a Highlander. I live forever. The point is, uh, there was the whole like narrative arc around like them trying to steal the bond certificates that were in a safe. And he like didn't, he genuinely didn't understand. He's like, it's just a piece of paper. Like, I mean, it's, you're like can you like go back to the the thing and they'll just like cancel the one out? I'm like that's not how it used to work, man. <laughs> they used a piece. Yeah, of, like, they, you had they used that to, you
1: used, to you used to walk around with was yeah, was it? The Die Hard where they had the German bearer bonds and and I think it was it was in it was in Beverly Hills Cop the same thing where they had the 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 bearer bonds where you actually if you held the certificate then you could exchange those. Yeah, you, you, that's not re- reality anymore. It's like Swiss bank accounts are gone. You know. Yep. Yep. They so. Don't.
2: Think of the past. Well, I wanna shift us to some of the uh, the topics that we were hoping to jump into with you today. The first area that I think we'd like to go through is just your thoughts on the general market. So, you know, when, when you're looking at the market, what are the things that stand out to you, either bullish or bearish after the, you know, going through the first seven and a half months or whatever it is of 2022? Mm-hmm. What are your big takeaways from the market overall?
1: Well, I mean, we're, you're in a period right now where it's so driven as much as, you know, we don't love it, it's so driven by monetary policy, right? So, and all of the risk assets are, are truly driven by that policy, you know, the, the, how people are, how they're looking at those and uh, how they're valuing those, right? So what I see is we've had this massive run up in inflation, right? So you can't really pull up, you can't look at the general market without looking at macroeconomic cycles and macroeconomic indicators and and inputs, right? So right now we have this, we have a huge problem with inflation partially because we printed so much money and we had, we subsidized our, you know, our citizens with, with handouts, right? Okay. You just put that where it is. And then we also have supply chain issues because we had shut down the economy. And then as people came out of their homes and started going back out and they started wanting more goods and services, well, the problem is there, there weren't the, the pieces weren't in place yet. Okay, so then you have that problem. People started buying goods in and you know, Target Walmart companies started buying goods and inventory and stocking up ahead of the possibility of yet another lockdown. So nobody knows and everybody was afraid. And so they didn't want to miss out on this, you know, hugely important last quarter of 2022, which is when retailers make most of their money. So you have that running up prices. Then you have the the energy problem, which is a supply issue. We don't have enough supply. We don't have enough refineries to meet demand there. You have the Ukraine situation just exacerbates that. So looking at the market, and looking at what we're looking what like everything we're seeing right now, we've had two negative GDP prints, okay? We are seeing consumer confidence come down. We are seeing manufacturing and industrial production is rolling over. Credit card and household debt is rising, along with the de- delinquencies, right? So people are missing payments. Unemployment you're seeing is rising. Tomorrow's number is going to be interesting. And we're starting to see some softening in the housing market. But the problem is we haven't seen prices come down yet. And so the the Fed has has they have a dual mandate, right? Full employment, low inflation, right? So but the market reading the Fed's comments, you know, Powell's comments last week is thinking, oh, they're already turned dovish. And they know that we are in a recession, regardless of what the White House says, regardless of what the Fed says or Yellen or anybody else. We're in a recession, right? And we are going to have to pause raising rates. And we're gonna, we're not gonna be able to do as much QT as fast as uh, quantitative tightening for your listeners as, as, as quickly as we want to. So the market, I believe, and this all gets to the answer of your question, is. I think the market's gotten ahead of itself thinking that the fed's going to pivot really quickly and just stop raising rates and and it, it has not priced in the probability that they still will raise another 50 basis points at least another raise in my mind now that could all change rapidly if we get a, an inflation print that's much lower and and we start seeing Some other indicators, we get a really bad unemployment number, uh, meaning bad that people are losing their jobs, not perversely good that for the market that people, you know. So but if we see those things, well, then the Fed may pull back. However, it's still driven off of that decision. And I still think that they're going to raise rates again. And so I don't think the market has priced that in. We've heard them say, now you've had all these Fed governors come out in the in the last few days saying, Oh, we're not done yet. We are not done. We need to see significant reduction of inflation and for a sustained period. So if we have one print that comes down from 9.1 CPI down to seven or eight, I don't think that's enough. Uh, that's that's that that's not going to convince them. And you've heard them saying that, you know, in the, the GDP number does not indicate that we're in a recession yet. The problem is, and here we get all the way back to the full circle, is the problem is the Fed is looking at lagging indicators across the board. GDP is such a lagging indicator, right? It takes so long to come up with estimates and then they're revised constantly until you get the real number and it's old. So we're seeing houses price, housing prices come down and we're seeing consumer confidence come down, yet we're not seeing consumer prices come down yet. And again, that's sticky because of energy prices. It, they, you know, when, when you have goods that are produced over a number of months that are just now coming to market, well, the price of those goods are the price of what they cost plus the margin. So people are buying, maybe they're buying the same amount of stuff but they're buying fewer things, right? So they're, bu- they're going down to the necessities. They're getting their gas to get to their job. They're getting their food and they're paying for their house and their energy. And those are the things that they're focused on right now. And if those are higher, that just means that discretionary goods come down, right? So Walmart and Target are going to sell fewer things that are not necessary, if that makes sense.
0: Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. I just want to let you know that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. The largest Bitcoin conference in Europe will take place from October 12th to 14th. More details can be found at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. Use promo code BM Live to get 10% off of your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter, where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets, so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. I mean, we saw it out of Walmart's earnings report, sort of the the warning that hey, we, we fucked this up a little bit, and it it's going to get uglier before it starts to get better.
1: Yeah, they front loaded wanna... the in- inventory, right? Exactly, so, and they're yeah.
0: Well. There are I have so many now questions off of your response. So forgive me, there might be a little bit of bouncing around here, but exactly. I want to first start with just your comment about the market's getting ahead of itself. We've seen the Fed's response, especially over the last six months, be in line with what the market has expected. Mind mm-hmm. you, the last six months have led us into this bear market that may may or may not have ended in the short term at least. Do you like what is your expectation if the market is getting ahead of itself what will the reaction be from the market standpoint if the fed starts making moves that the market otherwise was not expecting
1: well you know i think the the market may force the fed's hand because if the if if the equity market continues to recover it's such a large part of GDP for, for the United States. There, our financial markets are, are, are integrated into our production, right? They're closely integrated into them. So if that continues, then the Fed's going to say, well, it can stomach another. And again, the Fed doesn't really care about the equity markets. They care about the credit markets, right? So the credit markets are not breaking down. High yield spreads are coming down. Why is that? Because they're expecting a Fed pivot. So until high yield spreads and credit markets start to, the liquidity starts to dry up, there's still enough liquidity out there and the markets are, are operating efficiently and they're, and effectively. And so the Fed's not worried. The Fed is most worried about... and. It, if you just take them at their word, which I know it's difficult these days, but if you just take them at their word, they they are concerned about inflation. And if the unemployment number is not disastrous, inflation continues to be high, that's what they're focused on. So if the market continues to recover, I think it gives them firepower to go ahead and raise again, one, two, even three times if the if the market ignores it. Do I think that they're going to do that? No, I think it's gonna. I think that the numbers are, go, are going to come in fast enough. Recession, recessionary indicators are going to come in fast enough that they're going to be they're they're going to be forced to step back. So, but the pivot to me is a pause. They're gonna step back. They're gonna pause probably in September. Maybe after that after that meeting, October before the election and you know it's politically driven we all know it before the election and say we are on target the economy is good we have a soft landing and i think they're just hoping that the numbers don't come in rapidly enough to show that the demand destruction has pushed us into a deep recession and a recession that they can at least gaslight people about you know
0: Right. If they'll ever come out and actually admit what the definition of a recession exactly. is under this exactly. administration. Change the terms. Exactly. James, I want to get your sense on this. And we've we've gone back and forth on this show about what actually, in your opinion, is driving inflation. And of course, this can be driven by two parts. It could be a supply side issue, which we have seen some of, given the supply chain issues, shutdowns during COVID, as well as a demand issue, which we're starting to see a lot more of demand as people have been pent up saving money for years, and it's the demand side of this equation that the Fed, as you mentioned, can actually control and impact with demand destruction. But between mm-hmm. these two, it's no, there's no clear sign that it's a hundred percent the inflation is driven because of demand. So between the two, sort of, how would you like set it? My personal ratio has gone to, it's, it's roughly between 25 to 30% is driven by the supply chain issues, and then the rest of it is really driven by demand. Would, where do you sort of fall on that scale?
1: I don't know if I could, if, if I, I haven't thought about it in percentage terms, but you just, you, you just defined and articulated the exact problem the Fed is facing, right? So they know that there are supply issues. Okay, so where, what are the supply issues? Well, the, the biggest driver is energy. Right. So as energy prices remain high, remember, they were still high over the last couple of months. So prices are not coming down quite yet, in my opinion. Right. So and that the 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 input of energy on all prices of goods, you know, energy is is needed to create and to process and to deliver all these goods, including food. You know so if you if you just look at that one major component that has been sticky and has not come down and it is now but i'm talking about you know a a lagging indicator right so that is the primary driver and energy is high because of supply our our refineries are at capacity you know we haven't been we have not incentivized our energy producers to expand they've they've had a, a a rough number of years up until this last year and it's been i've seen a number of them fold their tents go out of business just because they couldn't keep up with, you know with their with the with the regulations with the with the anti-expansionary policies right so Now they, you know, they they're being asked to expand, but they're also giving them mixed signals, right? So they're saying, we're going to give, we're going to have this one-time tax. We're going to, you know, we're going to put more regulation around your, your facilities. And it's just, so that's the, that is to me, the largest impact to the prices that we're, that we're seeing that inflation. The second thing is, is of course, you know, housing has been massive, a massive driver and they keep adjusting how they're looking at that. So the, the equivalent housing index that's included in the CPI, it's difficult to say to say where that really ends up over over the next month or two, because we are seeing housing prices come down. But again, you know, I don't even know, I can't, I can't put my finger on exactly what they're looking at there. They don't, it, it's hard to see where that survey comes from and, you know, and the, the cities that they're surveying and, you know, it, it, it's difficult, but I hope that answers your question.
0: No, it, it does. And I want to read you a couple of just numbers that came across my desk and my emails. Household debt has now topped sixteen trillion dollars, the highest ever recorded level, driven primarily by auto and home loans, and credit card debt in particular is up thirteen percent year over year. With delinquency is sitting just about two point seven percent. So we're not at dangerous levels yet. But this sort of feeds into this idea that inflation has driven us to have to spend more money on the said necessities. We're still seeing sort of this demand a little bit in the housing markets. I mean, who would have thought if you were buying a car in 2020 or earlier, that was actually probably a better investment than buying a share of Exxon Mobil if you wanted to sell your car last year. I genuinely actually joked with my dad, we should just go buy a new car right now and then just immediately go and sell it because somehow that's what the market was dictating. That's obviously not a sustainable model. and We're sort of starting to see this reversion back I want to get a sense from you, like this credit bubble has to pop, or at least I believe it has to, but where is it going to pop? Where is sort of that component of it that you're keeping a very, very close eye on?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And like you just said, consumer debt is is high, but it's you know, it's not at critical levels yet, right? So it's impacting people, but it's not at critical levels. I don't. So if if you think about the credit bubble that we experienced back in 2008 and the housing crisis, the problem was people were borrowing, borrowing massive amounts of, on mortgages that were on, they were, they were on these instruments that were variable and could be greatly impacted by the rise in interest rates. Right. So the problem then is that you had low low income or you know subprime borrowers okay not necessarily low income but just not good borrowers that were taking on credit that it that it it exploded into this bubble that was forced to pop they just once the interest rates went up they that monthly rate the monthly payment doubled tripled on them they they were toast right so but we don't have that now so if you talk to the if you talk to the lenders the the difference is people who have taken out mortgages are much 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 higher credit rating than back in the the great financial crisis so that to me is the main driver credit card defaults they're problematic but you know, you, you default on your credit card and you owe the, the company money and you you'll work that out through your through your earnings or somehow you'll work out some sort of payment plan typically, but it's different than losing houses and having to declare bankruptcy, right? So it goes back to what you're saying. And what's the best what's the best way to kill inflation? Inflation, right? People have to stop buying things or or cut back on them and so eventually i think that's where we get to is you know people are being nickel and dime to death on on subscriptions you've got your netflix subscription you've got your youtube subscription you've got your you know your your spotify or apple music or whatever it is and those are the things that will fall away you're seeing you're seeing netflix now they're, they're talking about taking on advertising so i think it just forces changes and people will start peeling off those things and make those hard decisions, and and does that mean recession? Yeah, we're in we're in it, and it's not fun. And so, but I don't see. I I think that we're going to avoid a major credit bubble, but you know, if the Fed does, decides to raise rates three, four, five more times, all bets are off because all those credit card rates go up by that and a little bit of a multiple. right? So that's where it could be problematic. But I don't see them doing that.
0: Interesting. I I also want to further remind people of this caveat because so many people are quick to say like, oh, the housing market reads like 2008. There's a stark difference in that in 2007, 2008, people didn't have equity in their homes. People actually had negative equity in their homes i was having this conversation with my dad last week where he was like you know it's weird it was so easy to get a loan in 2006 2007 but damn near impossible now i'm like yes dad we learned the lessons thankfully from 2007 people have a lot more equity in their homes if they're for sellers at least they're not sort of walking away homeless hopefully knock on wood hopefully if you put you put yourself in a good position i mean The repo man coming to take the couch that you bought because you thought you were going to get that raise or whatever—like, not the end of the world. Let me tell you, my girlfriend Mm -hmm. has a panic attack every time I show her how I want to set up our living room when we move
1: it together. Um, (laughs) James, I got that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I agree.
0: I I, uh, have one more question on this topic before we start flipping over to the next one, but you know, we brought up Walmart and Target. You. You brought up how these big box retailers were essentially going and trying to get ahead of what they expected to be higher demand, bought up a whole bunch of inventory. We saw both Walmart and Target kind of get ripped apart during their earnings report coming out and saying, hey, we forecasted poorly. This is probably not going to be the only bad reading we give you this year. I am a big proponent and neither company has actually come out and necessarily said there's going to be massive layoffs. But- the way i read it is if a company is not making as much money you have to cut spending somewhere somehow and the highest cost of spending or the highest sort of overhead cost that walmart has is their uh, is their employee salaries so what like is that a fair expectation am i being a little too dramatic here what's your expectation out of that sector in particular because that feels like where the real economy you can get a better pulse on it
1: yeah, no, I think Walmart just announced that they were they were having layoffs from executives, right? So, so honestly, yeah, love that a, though.
2: It took all my self control not to hit the like wop 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 wop.
1: It's yeah, it's a, it's a it's absolutely perfectly, ex, you know, expectable, and you know, so there, we're seeing that the the major tech companies have hired, they've they've frozen their hiring, right? And they're just think about Google amazon apple like these companies if well I, i'm not i haven't i haven't seen amazon so correct me if i'm wrong there but apple these guys are like okay we, we we we're not hiring right now well think about how large they are and how many people they employ and how much they grow year over year that's a major that's a it's a major driver right so and they're just the bellwethers for what's going on in the entire industry so yeah and that we're going to see that slowdown. and again we're experiencing this like a like a slow motion train wreck where you're seeing all these indications you're seeing all these red flags yet you've got a fed who's looking at data that's stale and they're reactionary and they've said it over and over again they react to the data you know they don't try to predict what's going on they react to what they see so, yep, I do think we're going to see more layoffs, and I think that employment number is going to the unemployment number is going to rise. I do.
2: So, you have an amazing blog post on your Substack where you go through and define exactly what GDP is, why it's important, what goes into it, how it's calculated, and why we should care about it. Can you take us and the audience through that and? Explain it to us.
1: Sure. I mean, you know, the most important thing to know is that the GDP, the the gross domestic product of any nation or region entity is, I mean, it's, it just measures the production of that, of that area of that nation right and so you can you can measure it as nominal which is just the straight calculation or you can include inflation which is real gdp and that's what that's the number that we kind of that we look at that's the number that we quote how it's calculated there are a number of different ways it's calculated but basically there there are three different approaches you can there there's an expenditure approach which is kind of the spending approach the production or output approach and then there's the income approach and they're, they're different approaches, but they all should get to the same number theoretically. And so, but what you're doing is you're taking your consumer activity, your government activity and spending, your business investment, and then your net import export number. So it would be the net exports and you add those all up and you get your GDP, your gross domestic product of, of your country. And so what's important about that is that, I mean, that's your country's revenue, right? So when we, when we look at, A company you're thinking okay how much debt does this company have and are they are they able to service that debt with their revenues and their income right so we have our revenues which is basically our gdp is is a broad view of how much revenue we're creating and our the income to to the government are you know it's basically taxes right so but you can get an idea of how healthy an economy is by their gdp versus how much debt they have so if you're looking at the world's debt this is one of the things that you hear a lot of us talking about is that we have a major problem that the 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 world is we're so indebted we're living on a world of credit right so currently the world debt to gdp is about 3.5 to 1. So why is that so important? Well, think about it. If you've got debt that's 3.5 to 1, and let's just say that that the world debt is averaging about 3% yield, right? 3% coupon. Well, what does the GDP have to be to keep up with that if it's 3.5 to 1? Let's say that GDP is, is, you know, if if we even had average GDP at 3 or three percent three or four percent it's got to be 3.5 times that in order to keep up with the debt so the debt is just ballooning it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger okay it's it's concentrated in some areas and some of those regions some of those countries will they will fail why because they won't be able to service their debt and so you're seeing that going on right now in in places like italy in greece right so they have some of the worst debt to gdp we can talk about japan that's that's kind of a, its own beast but you're seeing what's happening in italy and G- in greece and and so one of the things that you're looking at is well if they if their debt is so high and their gdp can't service it well what does that do to the eu well the eu steps in and says oh we're going to have this new tool it's called the anti-fragmentation tool and really all that is is they're using yield curve control to make sure that the rates in Italy don't go up so high that they end up just defaulting on their debt because as rates go up higher, they the short-term rates go up higher, well it puts tremendous stress on their banking system and eventually those banks will fail and then they'll have to be bailed out by who? By Germany so that's the problem and so gdp is so important to see just how much debt your country has versus how much you're producing and that's becoming a, a glaring and really serious problem in europe it's become a tremendously serious problem in europe and they know it and so that's why europe the ecv just raised rates for the first time in 11 years and they were negative that whole time. So now they're at zero. Jesus, They're at zero interest rates and they have this problem. What do you think is going to happen? I think, you know, eventually wow. the union has to break up. It's it, 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 the writing's on the wall. It's clear. And you're seeing both a flee, you know, a flight of, of capital from Europe into the U.S. dollar because of both yield. The US, the US treasuries give you much more yield than you get in European treasuries and German treasuries even. And there's a flight to safety. You want your money in dollars. You don't want your money in euros if you're a major investor. So for those investors and those institutions that have the leeway to own a certain amount of foreign denominated securities and debt, they'll do as much as they can. And because it's a flight to safety and a flight to yield. So you're seeing that happen there. And you're seeing the same thing happen in Japan. We've talked about that that before, where Japan is doing the same thing and they're just being unabashedly. They're buying their 10-year treasuries and keeping that yield at 25 basis points. They're keeping that yield low in order to keep energizing the economy. The problem is, as you keep that yield artificially low right then you have investors looking at yields elsewhere like the US and saying okay well i can get a better yield there and so why am i going to stay here buying you know owning these treasuries when the jgb will buy them up keep the yields low and i could instead go get uh, you know 3% in an in a 10-year treasury in the u.s well that forces you to sell your sell your yen denominated bond take your yen sell those for dollars and buy the u.s treasuries so it puts tremendous pressure on the yen and so you see you've seen the yen just spike meaning that's a it's an inverse quote so when you see it go up from a hundred and 20 or 115 up to 137 that's the yield getting weaker that's the number of uh, the yen getting weaker that's the number of yen per dollar so it one of the problems with currencies i wrote something about this too is that they're quoted in all different ways so you've got inverse quotes i've in in some of them like gbp and yen so yeah GBP is, yeah, you'll you'll see the GBP quote, you'll see the dollar quoted the GDP or GDPs. Yeah. So it's it's a a different way to look at
0: it. Can you unpack a little bit, like we talk about the debt to GDP ratio a lot. What is its significance? Like why do people need to actually pay attention to what this is in the context of their own country's fiat currency?
1: Yeah. And it's just like we were just saying about, it's it's the amount of debt that, that they have and their ability to service it right so japan's going to run into a problem so we can just talk about that as an example their, their debt to gdp is over 250 percent right so that means that there what what's happening is in japan is the bank of japan now owns more debt than anyone else in japan so they own their own, more of their own debt they own over 50 percent of their Japanese denominated government bonds. And so the problem is, Q, is that eventually you'll either default because you cannot make your payments or there will be a loss in confidence in your currency and in those bonds and they will sell off and you will, you'll wind up having, you'll eventually wind up having hyperinflation. That's, that's, what you're, that's what you're watching out for. So if you're in, a, you're in a place like Lebanon or you're in Venezuela and you're watching your, your, your GDP and you're watching your bonds, you're looking, at, you're looking at clues. Well, where can you find those clues? The first step is obviously knowing what your debt to GDP is. But the, the biggest clues are in the CDS market. We've talked about this before, the credit default swap market, where you're seeing the investors who actually own those bonds take out insurance on those and pay for insurance on those in case they default. And so you're watching those credit default spreads. And as they go up, then you know that there's there's more risk. The risk is elevated in the instrument that you own. So you're watching for not just where it is, but is it moving and how rapidly? And so... If you know there's there's a I think it's World Government Bonds I, I put it in the, in a couple of my a couple of my newsletters it's called the World Government Bonds and you can you can go there you can see what the sovereign debt is and what the spreads are but if you go to a place like like a like Turkey you'll see that their their implied probability of default is at 13 percent right now Brazil's at four and a half Greece is at almost three. So that's, these are sovereign bonds, you know, they're, that they're supposed to be risk-free, right? They're not risk-free. And so that's where you have to see what, what, where your risk are, where your risk lies. And that's a pretty good indicator.
2: So I think this leads nicely into the, your explanation of the dollar milkshake theory. You do, you do a remarkable job of distilling it down into its essential components, I would say better than almost anyone else that I've read. I'm hoping you can take us through it and help explain to me and also the audience exactly what it is, why it's relevant,
1: and what it means. What is that? Which one? The,
2: you, the dollar milkshake.
1: Oh, the dollar milkshake. Yeah, well, you know, the, first, let's, let's talk about the fact that this is not my concept. This is, this is Brent Johnson's concept. From, from Santiago Co- Capital. And basically, you know, I, I had heard it thrown around and I was like, and I hadn't heard it before until I, I researched it and looked into it. And it makes perfect sense. We've, we've talked about on Spaces before, on, on Twitter Spaces. But basically the, the idea is this, You're, it comes from the theory that, it's like the action of, of one, one landowner Extracting oil from a neighboring property by drilling a longer straw, right? So let's say that Philip, you have um, you have a milkshake, okay, and Q's on the all the way on the other side of the of the, the restaurant, right, or cafe, right? And your milkshake is basically it's your currency. And Q wants to drink it, right? So he takes this really long straw. And he's able to take your milkshake and pour it into his own milkshake, right? And in this case, it's the dollar milkshake. Is in this case, your milkshake is the foreign currency. The straw is the U.S. dollar-denominated liabilities, and the one that's doing the drinking, or or the sh- or the other shake that is going into, is the dollar itself, right? So, the. If you look at the U.S. dollar denominated liabilities, U.S. dollar denominated debt, euro dollars, the central bank and major, you know, bank, the the liquidity and the interest rate differences, that's what's causing this dollar milkshakes. You're seeing the dollar get stronger and stronger and stronger. And there's a theory that eventually it just swallows all of these other currencies. And the reason is, just what I said is that there's so many liabilities and so, so many denominations in the dollar that the other currencies get siphoned into it.
0: So I want to I wanna speculate with you if you'll entertain me on this. And if, if you're like, yeah. no, you're more than welcome to be like, shut the fuck up you. <laughs> you talked a little bit about you know, the impending collapse of Europe. We're talking a lot about the dollar milkshake theory and how slowly but surely each of these fiat currencies will dissolve. What is your expectation for some of these weaker European countries should the Eurozone dissolve? We don't have a Euro. Like, what is Greece going to do realistically? Like, what are they able to do given their current situation?
1: (laughs) No, no. I mean, first of all, Jeff Ross has said hello, yellow. (laughs) Those guys are awesome. I love Jeff. He's, uh, He's super smart. Doctor turned macro expert. He's 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 one of my favorite guys. So so, what can they do? Well, I mean, you saw what happened after the great financial crisis, right? They were they were forced to do austerity, and one of the negative things is that they can take possession of of bank accounts, and you you saw them do this too. The percentage of bank accounts were just. They were they were taken by the U.S. by the U.S. by the uh, that was a slip of the tongue there right so by the by the Greek government in order to in order to shore up some of those banks and and ensure they had liquidity it's kind of like this extra little tax so that's one thing they can do but honestly what eventually happens is. In, in my mind and i don't know when this happens it could be a few years it could be a decade because these things sometimes take a lot longer than people realize but the european union breaks up bottom line and they're on their own and so you'll have a, a reset in regions like in in countries like greece in italy you'll have a financial reset and they will have a, they will have pain because their their banking systems their financial systems will grind to a halt, and they'll have to reset the currency and start all over again, have the uh, Italian Lira, you know, and, and start again. So it will be painful. It's not funny. This is a this is serious. It's a it, it's a, it's a bad deal. So you know, if you're in Italy, if you're in Greece, and you don't have just 1% of your, your money in in net Worth in Bitcoin? I don't understand why you should have something, some sort of insurance. So, well, I, they I'm, found me, guys. The helicopters are <laughs> here.
0: <laughs> You're speaking too many truth bombs to us. I I say this in jest, but in full seriousness. Like, am I going to be able to just buy property in Santorini? Like, is that we see Italy doing some crazy things to try to draw in some of this money that's leaving the U.S for europe for whatever reason i say it truly in jest but like i hope that somehow i can afford to buy maybe half the island of santorini maybe the whole thing, <laughs> just, just so that yellow can't come to the island i see you in the chat yellow he's, i'm buying santorini just so you can't come
1: it's, he's yeah yellow's uh he's got some good comments here i'm watching them yeah no comment <laughs> no comment on that one
0: to to take us back to the serious route we you also bring up japan and you know Dr. Jeff Ross, shout out to giving us this brilliant theory that, honestly, I'm so on board with, that Japan's hand will be forced as one of the first G7 countries to have to adopt Bitcoin to essentially hedge against their impending doom. Do you like this theory as much as I do? Can we maybe expand on this, talk about what these types of scenarios look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, Japan has a, has a problem where there, if the... If, if their yen, if the yen collapses, like they're not energy independent. They need to buy their energy. So how what are they going to use to buy that, right? So they should, by all means, be adopting Bitcoin right now. They should be buying Bitcoin as much as they can or gold or both, truly. But I don't know anything that they're doing any of that. But I don't think that Jeff is wrong. I think that, that would be that would be a way out for them, but they'd have to start doing it pretty rapidly I don't think they have I don't think they have that long to figure this out because if we go let's just say we go through this cycle okay and the U.S. turns around as QE again and then we take on all this debt they've taken on all this debt and then it happens again you know it happens every however many years and at some point the it just collapses and so they'll be left with a massive reset but i do like i do like the idea so having a reserve that they can bank against because you you know they're used to be on the gold standard but if you could go to a bitcoin standard man that would be brilliant for them do i see them doing it no i don't i think they're i think they're too entrenched in the traditional world and they think they're going to be able to navigate their way through this and in this cycle, I think, and I've said it before, I think they're they're playing a game of chicken with the Fed and thinking that well, the Fed's going to have to pivot here soon, and the pain will be over, and we won't have to stand and and buy every single bond that comes to market. In Japan, um, the other thing they could do, is, which is is real, is that they could enter a swap market agreement with the U.S. They have a lot of the U.S. Treasuries, and so we they could end up buying Treasuries to control our yield, and we could buy Japanese denominated securities to to help their yield. That could happen. I don't know anything. Trust me, I don't talk to anybody in our in our uh, in the Fed if, or the in, Treasury. If no you actually clue.
0: knew, yeah. you wouldn't be talking to the two of us right now. That's
2: for sure. <laughs> Counterpoint. That's exactly yeah. what you would say if you had insider information. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. so yeah but but i do agree with jeff that these guys are the, they're the ones who need it the most right now and they're the ones who could pull it off i don't see it i don't see europe being able to do it it's too complicated but japan is a single entity that they could they could pull it off
0: what now we have seen at least for a short time period, that there's been some movement of money back into U.S. Treasuries, these quote unquote safer assets. Two-part question for you is, do you think it's possible for U.S. Treasuries to go no bid in the near future? And if so, what would the effect be on the overall market if that were to
1: happen? Oh man, the financial markets are grind to a halt. To go no bid. Well, I mean, sure. If the, if the, Fed decides to dump their balance sheet rapidly and and it would just lock up liquidity but there are a lot of mechanisms mechanisms they can you know put forth in order to avoid a liquidity crisis you know they could change the the balance sheet requirements for banks the cash and treasury requirements they they've already back in 2019 that we had the we had the repo liquidity crisis that they've already instituted the ability to step in and and ensure liquidity there so i don't see the the treasury market grinding to a halt at least not this cycle however however that's exactly what will happen in the future at some point point. and that's when you know that's i don't know if it happens in the next 10 years Thirty years, fifty years, but at some point, that's exactly what will happen, and that's what collapses the the system because that's what the that's basically what the the world reserve is, the world reserve asset at this point is U.S. Treasuries, right? So if you don't if you don't have U.S. Treasuries, you know, then every single market grinds to a halt.
2: Can you take us through what a CDS is?
1: A credit default swap sure i mean so a credit default swap is just the it's just an agreement it's like a legal agreement between two parties right and so let's say that there are bonds let's say that the the italian government bonds out there and and there's one party one bank will offer the a swap a legal agreement that hey if these bonds default we'll make you whole on that Okay. So it's just, it's just like if your house burns down, okay. You've got, you've got insurance on it. You pay that insurance every single month. And, and if the house burns down, the, the insurance company makes you whole on it. You get, you get the value of your house. Okay. The agreed to value. It's the same thing you get, you get the value of par for that swap that you've that you agreed to sign that legal agreement with the other party okay so and you pay a premium for that you you typically it's a quarterly premium that it's quoted annually that you're paying that premium in order to maintain that insurance right so if you see that premium go up then it means that there is a higher likelihood of default that the seller of the insurance is is there demanding a higher rate because they see that it's it's a it's a higher risk of default okay so but if you look at any credit that has a CDS on it okay talk about a company credit so say you have a credit default swap on GM right and you think well if the if the company defaults on this bond that I own okay and at the the capital structure of companies is super complicated. They're ladders of different debt securities and, and claims on assets. But let's just pretend that you know that your bond would have a claim on assets that would be worth 40 cents on the dollar. Okay. So you can take that, that credit default swap and divide that, that amount that you would recover. It's a recovery value okay, from the price to determine what the, what the likelihood of default is, right? Because you're not going to zero. It's going to something that you'll get a recovery off of. So you take that, that price and you divide it by the inverse of that, which would be 60%, and you get your, your, your implied default rate. Does that make sense? There's a lot, but I, I walked through it completely in my in in my newsletter recently. Which I, I need to highlight. Confused, for, yeah.
0: I need to tell everyone if you are not subscribed to James's Substack, it, you're doing everything about macro research incorrectly. So please do yourself and your a favor. Your children will hate you. Do yourself a favor and read what this man writes. He there's a, a very in-depth technical explanation. I love to smooth brain this and my way of approaching it is it's insurance on bonds, in the event that the bond just doesn't pay out, and that that is the big thing that was, you know, drawn out in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. That was what Michael Berry and all these people were making millions off of, and this is where it gets interesting to me. And I want to bring it back to the very beginning of our conversation when you talked about counterparty risk. There was a huge counterparty risk in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, where there was the possibility that Berry and some of these other investors could just not have gotten paid because the companies that they were buying the insurance from could have in turn in this contagion, gone out of business and had no money Correct. to pay them back.
1: Correct. Yeah. So,
0: oh, I find it. But here's new- the, here's
1: the, here's the funny thing about, okay, so credit default swaps. Okay. So you can, it would be a credit default swap is like, okay, you have a house and I take out insurance on the house. So, you have insurance on the house. I have insurance on the house. Then Philip comes in. He's got insur- insurance on the house. Jeff Ross comes in. He's got insurance. So you've got, you've got multiple parties that have insurance, but you're the only one who owns the house. So even if I don't own the bond, I could go get insurance on it, right? So if I'm an institution, I could go out and buy you know, $100 million worth of, in, of, of credit default insurance on Italian debt. I can do that even though I don't own any just because I think that that it, but I may use that and here's where it gets interesting for institutional investors is that I may use that as a as a proxy hedge to something else that's in my portfolio that I know that if Italy defaults that this this asset that I have is is impaired and so I need to take in, take insurance on italy in order to protect against that so that's where it gets pretty intricate in the institutional world but but you're right it's all it is it's just insurance on a bond and that's exactly what happened in in the great financial crisis and the housing crisis and just like you said there were a number of counterparties that did not get made whole because people went out of business and the counterparties. They were so snarled up, they were that you you didn't know who your counterparty was, and they just disappeared. And they they couldn't unwind them and and see through exactly who was due to pay, you know, who was who was on on the hook for the liability. So it did happen.
0: I want to now, if if you'll entertain me, unpack the the Greg Foss quote that has been spreading like wildfire especially over the last week of the idea that bitcoin is a credit default swap on the fed. I've tried explaining this to my dad and I can't do it. So I'm really hoping James what I can do after this is clip this section of our interview and send it to my dad and be like does it make sense now?
1: On the on well
0: like it I'm, is I'm happy be- to talk talk step by step through it with you and and try to figure out because What I think some people don't really recognize is the significance of what it actually means to be a credit default swap against something like fiat, against something like our day-to-day dollars, and the significance and importance of that in your investment portfolio, whether or not you believe in Bitcoin in the same way that the the hardcore maxis do, from a strictly investment perspective, this hedge now becomes a vital part of every portfolio, in my opinion.
1: Right yeah and so okay so simplify it right so greg can talk in greeks and gammas and like he he can get really deep. (laughs) i want to do that he's he's super he's super smart and super passionate i love greg but so the credit default swap on sovereign debt okay so the the difference between bitcoin and sovereign debt cds's so rather than getting like a cds on italian debt you know well first of all individuals can't buy that you can't just go in and buy a cds on italian debt right so if so if you're italian and italy falls apart they collapse okay they they go into default and there's a reset you're and you know your euros are basically worth. let's just say that the euro just implodes well there's nothing you can really do about that as far as buying a CDS on Italian debt in order to protect yourself, okay? We talk about that just to give people an understanding of how institutional investors approach this. But as an individual, you can have some, you can have Bitcoin in your wallet in order to protect yourself, okay? You don't have to have all of your net worth in Bitcoin if you just have some. Now, the credit default swap he's talking about, Is it's on a basket of sovereigns. So if you have a number of major sovereigns default, then what do you think is going to happen to Bitcoin? I mean, they're going to go into the, the the money's going to go into the dollar. It's going to you know the dollar milkshake will occur to some degree, but it's absolutely going to go into Bitcoin as well. And so as people flee that currency in order to shore up their their own. Okay. So, but owning Bitcoin is a way to prevent losing all of your money as that currency devolves, right? So if you're in an Italian bank and you have, or let's just, let's, let's say it's Japan that's going to fall apart. Okay. (laughs) Craig, let's say Japan falls apart. And you're you're you have your money at Japanese bank. Well, if you have US dollars, like how are you going to protect yourself if you don't have if you don't have ownership of your asset, if if it's just a if it's just a liability at a bank? And if, if the if the country falls apart, where is your currency? Or would you rather have gold? So the credit default swap means that it it never expires, right? And it's insurance against that currency falling apart because that currency goes to zero. Bitcoin's not going to zero, it's going up. If the entire world, let's say all fiat currencies, all fiat currencies default, what do you think is going to happen to Bitcoin? It's going to be worth tens of millions of dollars more, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars in those terms. Of course, everybody in, in our world would say it'll be worth one Bitcoin. But if you, just, if you just look at M2 across the world, okay, about $100 trillion, right? So if you look at M2 and Bitcoin is now, the, the, the market value of Bitcoin is about $400 billion, right? Okay. So if all of the money, all that savings, all that money has to go into an alternative currency, and that's Bitcoin, That's a 250 times, okay, it's 250 times market value what it is today. So if you have 1%, 1% of your net worth in Bitcoin, you could have two and a half times your entire portfolio on the back end of it if everything collapses. If you have zero, all of your cash and anything that you don't have invested in hard assets, It's up, who knows exactly what it's going to be worth, but you will lose anything that you have in cash. It'll be worth zero. Does that make sense?
0: It almost feels like what we're seeing is, or or what we're talking about is the dollar milkshake theory with... Another milkshake, almost like that meme, and I I see all you meme factory You're saying there's a milkshake are. behind the milkshake. Exactly. It's like that meme of the guy in the church with the sniper who's like shooting down, but then the two people are down there, and it's like the U.S. dollar is gonna kill this person in front, but really the sniper back there is Bitcoin. And it's like I don't give a shit. Fine, you, you want to hide your money in the
2: dollar for like another two
0: years? I'm I'm just coming for that eventually.
2: Wait, okay, I got to we got to mind this meme. So who's sitting in the front? You know, appeal. Who's in the second? Who's the third? Who's the fourth? What is the worst fiat currency? Like, if someone told you <laughs> they have their wealth in this fiat, uh,
1: you well, would literally I mean, come on, guys. There's so many out there. I mean, yeah, but you got you got I, to pick one. I mean, like for us, the
2: worst, the absolute worst fiat. And yes, I know I, how absurd of a question we are asking you.
1: Well, you can't,
2: say, you can't say seashells.
1: Okay, if we're looking at if we're looking at G20s, I would, you know you have to look at Turkey. That's a that's a major problem. Right. So, um, but, but of the ones everybody's talking about, you, you got to have Japan and you've got to have the euro in there too. So, there. All right. So, we got Turkey, are.
2: Greece. Sorry. What was the second one?
1: Well, if you, well, but Greece doesn't have a currency. It's uh, the euro, right? So, Greece, and Italy, all right. Turkey, Japan, and, 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 and the euro. euro it's euro. Euro is it's all or nothing, right? Yeah. So,
2: all right. So, it's Turkey, Japan, euro, US dollar, then Bitcoin bitcoin bitcoin's the guy behind the guy
1: behind the guy
2: i
0: like this i like this plan (laughs) i'm excited oh but of course we could also just gloriously be wrong and the powers that be could just you know the lizard people can reset the simulation we can go on back to 2005 and everything will be fine and dandy right
1: no i don't understand (laughs) the question
0: (laughs) there
2: there was no question It's ridiculous, Q. We all know that the lizard people are real, but there is no reset button. This is the type of simulation where they all you just you can't go back without destroying everything. So no, that's not what the lizard overload just told
0: me in my dream last night. They, really they said we'll go back to 2005 eventually, but only if and when we break everything here so
1: gloriously. And they're doing a great job,
0: <laughs> James. We, we've covered a host of different topics. We've covered as many things about macro. Is there anything in particular that we haven't really touched on that you'd like us to maybe
2: dive a little bit down? We have about 10 10 minutes left here. I I do Uh, have one, Go. Go, can I jump in with one quick question? Going all the way back to the beginning of the conversation, you talked about your journey into Bitcoin and how part of that was your son, you know, telling you to initially invest in, I think it was like Ethereum and Cardano. And I guess my question is, Mm what would it take for you to let him back into your life now that you've disowned
1: him <laughs> for steering you so wrong? He's been steered properly. All right. he, he has he has moved virtually everything he has into Bitcoin now. So he understands it, he's getting it. So disownism, it's hard when you have kids, you know, you love them no matter what. <laughs> so Sounds... I thank him for, I thank him for truly for getting me back into into this space and and to explore it, because without him, with, without him nudging me, and you know, and without him telling me, look, you've got to look back into this, I wouldn't I wouldn't have figured it all out as quickly as I did. So I do have to thank him. So I have not disowned him.
2: I'm disappointed, but I understand the love of you know family is important. Please continue. I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> again, <but>. That's
1: good. <laughs> no, I think, you know, we've covered quite a bit. I I'm going to be interested. I'm really watching these numbers. We've got, we've got two CPIs. We've got two unemployment numbers, unemployment numbers coming out. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm keyed into that. You've the fed wants to, they, as much as they say, they're not going to give guidance, they can't help it. They, they want to give heads up because the market, what the market hates is uncertainty. Right, so they think they figured the Fed out last week, and then you you hear them today that they haven't really figured them out. So the we're I'm watching and listening to what they have to say just for clues. But honestly, navigate this carefully. This is a really treacherous environment. One more one or two major mi- missteps, and and we could dive headlong into a deep recession and it would be ugly. I do think that there's more pain coming. I don't think that we're out of the woods yet, personally. I do think that Bitcoin could grind sideways here for a while, but it's Bitcoin. So it could double overnight. Well, not overnight, but it, well, it could, but you know, it's Bitcoin, it could do what it wants. So I, I would be very careful not to take any of the Fed statements and or any of the economic indicators that you see and most importantly honestly most importantly if if your viewers can take anything away from this don't leverage yourself when buying bitcoin especially god please do not put bitcoin itself up as the collateral that is the absolute most dangerous way to invest period is to use a volatile asset as its own collateral to invest in it that's just it, and people don't understand that but i'm telling you that's how people get absolutely destroyed so that's what i would cost you on
0: not financial advice but seriously don't stop degen trying to trade and oh like, i'll turn my point two bitcoin into two like stop enough with this leverage nonsense all i'm saying I have,
2: all i'm saying is i have two kidneys and you know, I only need one. You yeah. You kill? should, you should sell, you viewers should sell peas kidneys before <laughs> going
0: on. No, leverage. it's all going
2: wrong. I,
1: <laughs> I, have a credit default swap on that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a credit default swap on peas kidneys, not kidneys. It's just mine, mine specifically. I, uh, I have a theory I, that I have not mathematically tried to
0: actually calculate, but there should be, there is a way to calculate this. Genuinely, i genuinely place. <laughs> you Lacy. say this as if all your theories have like a deep rooting in mathematics. I mean, but so here's my theory that we should have gotten 100K in the price of Bitcoin. However, the thing that actually prevented us was the high amount of leverage in the market that at a certain price point, the market actually, there is not enough Bitcoin in existence to have filled the successes of all these degen leveraged traders Should Bitcoin have reached a certain price threshold? And as a result, the market itself had to forcefully suppress the price of Bitcoin lower. So it's all your fuckers' faults that we didn't get 100K Bitcoin. That's what I'm trying to say.
1: Got to place the blame somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. I hate, I
0: I know how lame asking speculative questions are, James, but what is your expectation for the CPI read from the month of July? Oh, God.
2: Like yeah. wait, simple incredible. As higher or, or lower. You're, I literally saw like a single tear just squeeze out of the corner of your eye, and you were like, "I regret every choice that I've made in my life. that led to this moment. I never should have come on this show." Like so, I don't, I don't need you to exactly. tell me like seven point eight. 7. Yeah, why 7? do you put our guests to this pain? Yeah. yesterday when it was, you were I like think it's 7. Lower.
1: I think it's gonna be lower, but not low enough to stop the Fed from from at least raising one more time. But that's my that's my guess. Because they want to see it lower and sustained. So that's my guess. Lower, but not enough. That's my guess.
0: Okay. I can't wait to invite both you and Jeff Ross back on after the CPI print comes out higher.
1: Yeah. I mean, it could. That's why I'm saying is like, be careful. Seriously, uh, be careful out there.
0: This is why I I take the other side of the coin. I think we're still going to get higher CPI because That 9.1 reading is not month over month. That is a year over year reading. Largest driver of that has been the price of oil. The price of oil from a month, from a year ago, July of 2021 was about $75 a barrel. That is a 20 to 25% premium on where we are, where we were for the month of July. So that reads to me like, oh, actually we're still, like CPI is such a lagging indicator that we're still Mm -hmm. a couple months unless- to a lot of people's uh, predictions right now, or at least expectations, we will start to see this decline in the price of oil. Which should we get to levels from last year? That's when I think I will start start siding with people like yourself and Jeff, and saying we're, we're now going to see peak inflation and we're going to start to see these readings readings come down. Yeah,
1: but but don't forget also you you had people coming out of the lockdowns and you know so there was more activity, more economic activity a year ago than there. Than there was in the previous print you know it just keeps going right <laughs> jeff for jeff jeff takes so much heat for for you know putting on the bear coat every once in a while <laughs> he just takes so much heat
0: just wait for this picture honest, you know P <laughs> unfortunately created an image thanks to dolly to an ai image generator that has haunted me for the last two nights and let me just say it's gonna it's gonna come out online and i hope it haunts all of you as, well, as much as it has. You're content. hyping it up
2: as if it's like a Cronenberg monster. It's literally Dude, this, just the eyes just of bear this bear wearing. It's like a doctor that's a bear. But the eyes, man, the eyes tell you oh, everything. No. Those eyes look oh, like no. death. Disagree.
1: Are you going to post it? Or?
2: No, he's going <laughs> to hype it up until it's like just a fever pitch and then he's going to rug everyone. And it's just, it's
1: it's not that amazing.
2: An image. I mean, it does have Dr. Jeff's like eyes, like just like just striking eyes. That's the, the terrifying part, the, the human eyes. But Other than that, it's, it's just totally normal, you know, grizzly bear and a doctor
1: coat. I very much look forward to it.
2: (laughs) James,
0: when you hear Amsterdam, what comes to your mind?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to go. I'd love to go. I'm, I'm actually, I think I'm going to be, I'm going to be with Greg and Jeff talking in, we're going to go to Bulgaria and we're going to be, we're going to talk there. And then we're going to talk at the UK Bitcoin conference. So yeah, uh, let, let me know if you guys need another speaker or panel or something, so just let me know.
0: Well, you, you heard it here, George, I know you're listening, McShane, I know you're listening. Do it, do it. The, the next question I was genuinely about to ask you is who would you like to see as a speaker at Bitcoin Amsterdam, but you kind of front, run, front ran that question with yourself nothing but respect. I'd like to see,
1: I'd like to see Greg uh, uh, Aziz on there. (laughs) 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 Nothing, Uh, wearing nothing but a potato sack.
0: (laughs) James, for our audience who, I don't know, for whatever reason is not already subscribed to your Substack or follow you on Twitter, where can they stay up to date with all the work you're doing and all the research you have cooking up?
1: Yeah, no, that's obviously I'm on Twitter. And so I'd appreciate that. And you can follow me there. I I have things to say most regularly. And then I do the, you're talking the Substack for people who don't know what it is. It's a newsletter that comes out every single week on Sunday morning. And I just take one complicated concept and simplify it. Simplify it down to any, for anybody. You don't have to be in finance. You can, you can be in any industry and it's just made to, to take away some of that opaqueness and, and, and peek behind the curtain of what really goes on and, and how this stuff comes together and why it's important. So, and I try to make them timely topics that people are thinking about that are front of their mind. So, and then finally, I, I've been that 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 Substack is also, I, I've made it available to the Bitcoin education platform, that platform that I got invited to help on And it's called the, the Looking Glass. Uh, edu education platform it's on my twitter there's a there's a link to it and that's an awesome awesome platform these guys have put together these young guys have put together and greg um, uh, foss had invited me to to help out there so then uh it, you know you can you can just sign up there and you can walk you know it, it's like a it's like a course and it's what what is money and why does it matter? What's going on in the world? And it kind of leads you down to why Bitcoin is the solution, but it's great for anybody, any educational uh, level on the, on the Bit- Bitcoin space um, or in finance. It's awesome. And you can do it through your at your at your leisure. You can decide how much you want to do, how, how quickly. And it's just like going through a course. So and it's awesome. It's free. So definitely that's it. But thank you guys. I appreciate so much you for you having me on and getting to talk with both of you awesome questions. And thank you.
0: This was wonderful, James. I was sad to have missed you the first time when you jumped on the magazine live and I appreciate you you coming and joining us again. Thank you guys. I cannot stress enough. If you are not subscribed or following James and the work he does, I highly, highly recommend. Also, if you're not subscribed to the channel down below, please do that apparently they're checking how many subscribers we have now. So I have to be held accountable for my job. (laughs) We used to be
2: able to say whatever the fuck we wanted, but whoever
0: made these decisions without running a buy me, like, come
2: on guys. (laughs) Yeah. I Um, just want to say one more time, James, you know, when we're having these conversations, Q tends to like lead the, the market related price related. It's just hard for me to like care about the price and the macro environment, but your Substack is one of the very few that I read, that I read consistently. I really appreciate Thank it. You. It's very, very well written. And you dumb it down to the point it. where even I can understand it. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that, guys.
0: Hey, guys. This is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. We're going back to Miami for Bitcoin 2023. Lock in your tickets before prices go up. Use promo code Live to get 10% off of your tickets today. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.